So, a lot of talking. How are you doing? Some nods okay. Some of you are okay. <laughs> it's a lot though, huh? Isn't it nice to get quiet again? <clears throat> Save you from yourself. So last night, Mark talked about some principles for returning from the retreat to the engagement of your life. And tomorrow morning, we will as well, the kind of nuts and bolts specific things of daily practice and sangha and so forth. Um, Tonight, I want to put it in a more... hmm, timeless way. Because you're going out from the temple, or maybe you're allowing the world to come into your practice in your temple, um, is a really beautiful thing, even though it might be difficult. Um, and when I lived over many years, I lived and came, went back and forth to Thailand, um, Burma, Laos, in the 19... 19- 70s, there was a big student rebellion, as there is this whole vast set of revolutions now that are happening across North Africa and the Arab-speaking world. There was um, against the military dictatorship that was ensconced in Thailand, and it was one of the periods where it got bad, um, and there was the conflicts were... Um, getting more heated and the military was shooting. A number of students died and there were barricades. And um, as happens in these kind of revolutionary times. Um, And Thailand has mostly been relatively peaceful. There haven't been big violent revolutions, but this was a really hard, tense period. Um, And the barricades were set on Raja Damnarn Avenue. They were sort of near the not far from the royal palace and the military on this side. And things were getting worse. And then one morning when things had gotten really heated and it was unclear how bad it would get, uh, the abbot of a forest monastery that was 50, 60 miles outside of Bangkok got all his monks and nuns up very early I don't know how far it was, actually. Got their robes on, took their bowls, and they walked to Bangkok, barefoot. And they got there middle of the morning when all the tension was building and conflict. And they carried their bowls and their robes, and they walked in a long line and stood between the military and the students. And they just did standing meditation for a couple of hours there. And it changed almost everything from that day, what had been escalating to more conflict, more shooting, more deaths. Um, The vision of the monks and nuns who were there somehow cooled the hearts of the people 
on both sides, the military went, oh yeah, this isn't really what the Buddha taught. We are, you know, living in a Buddhist culture and so forth. And the students remembered something and things began to de-escalate and there came a kind of political solution for it. William Butler Yeats, we can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. And so there's a way as you go back into the troubled world and the magnificently beautiful and complex and noisy and creative and amazing and difficult world, that you are those monks and nuns leaving the temple or taking the temple with you actually and standing in the airport in line with your ticket or your passport or watching the news with other people. Um, And you carry your bowl and your robes and really you carry your practice. And it's an enormously beautiful and transformative thing to do just that. My greatest weapon, said Gandhi, is mute prayer. Just his silent presence was as as powerful as anything he ever did. Or Bob Dylan who said, well, what else can you do for people but inspire them? You know, and he does it through his poetry and song. But there's a way in which you do it through your practice and your presence. And it's a, it's a magnificent thing and also a very simple thing. It's like you carry sanity. And I know you were sitting here and you weren't always sane, you know. You came and demonstrated that to us in magnificent ways. Right? But you were held, not just by this place, but by your own wisdom and sanity, big enough to let Mara come and do his dance. I think it's very good that he's a masculine figure. Um, and you carry this already. It's not like doesn't really matter exactly how your retreat went. It had it ups and downs and some beautiful, profound openings sometimes for some people and some deep healing at times and some plodding boredom and how do I get through this and doubt and all that, but you did. And that presence that got you through all that is who you are now. And you understand something that allows you to move with the graciousness that you carry a kind of knowing that's quite trustworthy. Now the world that you're going to is a world, as we know, that is um, divided and split. You know, the sacred is in the church or the temple. The body goes to the gym. Money and stuff is in business. You know, um, the uh, um, work is in your office and it's like they're not connected. The sacred isn't there in the office or the, or the, you know, with the body or, or whatever. Let me see. Yeah. Sun bear. Chippewa medicine man. 
says, I do not think that the measure of a civilization is how tall its buildings of concrete are, but rather how well its people have learned to relate to their environment and all those beings that they share it with. And so you go back and, you know, it's a consumer society. Julia Childs writes, in department stores, so much unnecessary kitchen equipment is bought indiscriminately by people who just came in for men's underwear, you know. <laughs> and we just get pulled and sidetracked by everything all the time. And the thing is that it's deliberate that the highest paid psychologists in America are working to make packaging for that underwear for women and men. And, and they're working for Mara, actually, to seduce you to buy that, buy that shit. <laughs> and it's not, I don't have anything against nice underwear, by the way. I just want to say that you know, but you know what I'm talking about. It's like, it's, it's the pull, the seduction. Um, and that's not where you are. And it's not who you are. You know, and the warfare and the continuing environmental destruction and the racism and the sexism and all the things that plague the world that come from the human heart. Um, The question for you is what beauty can you bring? What beauty can you create in this world? Because you can. And then it's not about what you experienced on the retreat, because you had all kinds of experiences, but the embodiment of this in some very simple and direct way. Now to do this um, requires also that you be comfortable with the paradox of the world as we've talked about the universal and the personal. Um, I talked about the underwear. This is Alison Luderman, one of my favorite poets. She writes, You know me, I want everything and the nothing it births out of, knowing I can't have anything unless I surrender all attachments, which is tricky, somewhat akin to hiding the chocolate chips from yourself because you're on a diet Meanwhile, only you know where those chips are hidden. <laughs> you know, we have the dilemma of desire. And it's not something that you're supposed to get rid of. Anybody get rid of it? I mean, it's not the point. But how do we live with the incarnation, with the tainted glory of humanity, with its beauty and its difficulty, with this, like those monks or nuns, standing in the middle of it and stopping the war? with ourselves, with others, all around us. And we do it really by trusting the practice that we've learned. So simple. Alexander Solzhenitsyn If only it were so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary simply to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. 
but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who among us is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? So we don't go out there in some way to say, okay, this is right and that's wrong and kind of fix it. There's something deeper and more timeless that you carry from the temple into the world, which holds and embraces the paradox of life, the paradox of incarnation and the nobility of that spirit that was born into this body that was there before you even took this birth that freedom. And to carry in this way, to carry the temple in your being, in your heart, is to live as a bodhisattva. Bodhisattva is this beautiful compound word. Bodhi means awakened and sattva means being. A being who's committed to awakening to the awakening of all beings. And to move as a bodhisattva, which you are, um, requires a deep knowing and a deep intention. And the deep knowing, you know, for a long time as a practitioner, I was a learner and a seeker and I went to retreats and studied with really great masters and did all kinds of practices and learned a lot from it and had some um, beautiful and moving experiences and saw certain things. Um, Then there just got to be some point where I realized it wasn't about having any more experiences. I mean, we've all had quite a few experiences and it wasn't really about learning anything, although I'm open to learning things and keep learning them, but that the the enlightenment that we seek, that what enlightenment is, is a trusting of awareness itself, a trusting of the space of knowing, of consciousness that you have touched here that contains all things, that allows all things, in which joy and sorrow and beauty and ugliness arise and pass away, and knowing that you are not just the limited self that we ordinarily take ourselves to be. And then it's not something you're trying to get, but it's really something that you are, that you know. And the kind of knowing that matters, which is, which is really liberating. How's the bird? Bird's okay? Thank you. The bird savior, the bird bodhisattvas have returned. It's so good. The kind of knowing um, is not something that you get from an experience but it's somehow coming to rest like those monks and nuns standing in the line in some deeper truth that freedom is here and now always. Master, said one young monk, how can I get emancipated? And the uh, master looked back and said, whoever has put you in bondage? (laughs) 
So there's a knowing of a kind of freedom that is your birthright, no nobly born. And the Bodhisattva carries this knowing. And it means also that you know sorrow, that you know dukkha, because this is part of the revelation of the Buddha, to see that the human world, um, this human realm, and you'll see it when you go back and look in the news, it's the same news in some ways that was where some years ago and last year and will be in a few years in different other places, um, that, that this world is woven with sorrow and beauty together. And that's how the human realm is. And so this deep knowing recognizes the truth of this um, and doesn't run from it but says, yes, this is, this is a part of existence. It can turn and bow to it and say, yes, here we are standing with our robes and bowl in the middle of it, making something different of it. So that a few years ago when I was teaching in San Francisco with Pema Chodron, big event at the Masonic Auditorium, and there were several thousand people who came um, teaching on compassion. And after the teaching dialogue that we did, we took questions and a woman stood up, young woman, with very um, pained voice, quite raw, and talked about how her partner had um, committed suicide, had killed themselves just a couple weeks before. And suicide is a particularly complicated um, complicated tragedy because there's loss and grief but also there's guilt could I have done something there's worry there's anger how could they do that it just so brings up everything and she was so shaken and Pema responded by talking about holding all that suffering in compassion all of it and I could see somehow also how lonely she felt, which we do when tragedy comes sometimes. Um, And so when Pema was done, I said, how many other people in this room have experienced the suicide of someone in their family or really close to them? And I don't know, 200 people stood up, maybe 8%, something like that. A lot of people. And I said, would you look at her? And then I said to this young woman, would you look at them? And even without using words, just let her know as you look at her what you've lived through, what you know. And it was an amazing moment. Even without any words, it's like the whole room became so still, like those monks and nuns between the lines of the military and the students. because it was a willingness to see the truth of suffering and to stand in the middle of it and to share it in some way and say, yes, this is part of our human lot. Elie Wiesel, the Nobel Prize winner, he says, suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how you use it. If you use it to increase the anguish of yourself or others, 
you are degrading, even betraying it. And yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can elevate human beings. God help us to bear our suffering well. So as a carrier of wisdom, there's a knowing of the sorrows of the world that you really are unafraid to turn toward them and say yes, to bow to them. And there's also a knowing that they're not the end of the story, that there is as well a a freedom and a an untouchable spirit in human beings. Dina Metzger, good friend, the woman who went and sat with the elephants and the elders around the world, she writes, give me everything mangled and bruised and I will make a light of it to make you weep and we will have rain and we will begin again. And she's somebody who goes to the worst suffering in the world and brings the elders together. She's really brave in that way. Give me everything mangled and bruised and I will make a light of it to make you weep. And we will have rain and we will begin again. And I could feel it in the work with you. We all did in some way in the interviews and the meetings with you that there are times when that which was mangled and bruised and... um, lost in you would open up and be revealed. And sometimes it was agonizing, it was very, very difficult. And yet, it was not the end of the story. And yet, somehow, you survived. There's a spirit in you that survived that's that's free, even through all of that. Like Jarvis Masters, this Dharma practitioner on death row in San Quentin, and I've been part of the San Quentin Prison Project for 10 years now, on and off, who's written some beautiful things about his practice. And um, some of you heard this story, I just find it so illustrious, illustrative of freedom. Anyway, it was... um, Jarvis has taken bodhisattva vows with Thrangu Rinpoche, and it was the winter, um, and it had rained a lot. You know about that. (laughs) And uh, he was out in the yard. The sun had come out. There was a little break, and you could go out in San Quentin Yard. And San Quentin Yard is a wild place. Talk about paradox, because there is the several layers of wire fence and the razor wire at the top and the guard towers with guys with their automatic weapons. But right through that chain link fence is San Francisco Bay, Mount Tamalpais, sailboats, people, um, you know, windsurfing. And it's the, one of the most beautiful properties on the bay. So here you are in this magnificently beautiful place, you know, with the guards and the razor wire. Um, and because it had rained, there were these puddles. And in the puddle there came a seagull that landed and was sort of splashing around on the puddles. And Jarvis was out there and the guy sitting next to him, um, young buff guy, people were working out in the gym there and whatever, picked up a rock to throw at the seagull. 
you people who take care of birds. Um, and if you don't understand that, you haven't been hanging out with young men lately, but there's a, you know, a thing about shooting and whatever. It's somewhere, hunting, hunting, whatever. Anyway, um, and uh, Jarvis stuck out his hand to stop him. And the guy got really angry, you know, hey, man, what you doing? You know, started to shout at him, who do you think you are? Because you have your own space in the prison and nobody messes with somebody without something coming down that's really painful. And um, everybody in the yard got really quiet, you know, like something's going to happen here. And Jarvis turned back to him, looked at him and said, that bird got my wings. And the guy went, huh? You know, what's that mean? If you're really in trouble, say something insane like that. And other people, you know, it helps. Um, but he put his rock down, you know, like, what the hell does that mean? And Jarvis got up and walked away and things kind of quieted down. And for two weeks after that, people walked through the cell blocks and stuff and they'd say, hey, Jarvis, man, what'd you mean that bird got my wings? It's like a koan, and Jarvis never answered it. He wouldn't say, but you know, you know exactly what he meant. There is in us uh, not only the sorrows of the world, but there is also an untarnished spirit, an unshakable spirit um, that was born into you and into each being. Nelson Mandela carried after 27 years in Robben Island and Aung San Suu Kyi, the light of Burma, and that is in you. And that bird got my wings. And it doesn't matter, the prison is just the outer prison. But there's something that can't be touched. So the Bodhisattva knows, knows the sorrow of the world, but also knows it's not the end of the story knows it enough to stand between the lines there and feel that truth. The Bodhisattva has a knowing and a deep intention. And intention is this beautiful thing in Buddhist understanding that as we intend, so our life unfolds. From a Buddhist text, This is the final insight. Now you know how to let every experience arise and pass away, neither rejecting it nor falling under its spell. Resting in the timeless, you realize that there is nothing to gain and nothing to lose. And now in this liberation, there's born in you exceeding compassion for all those living creatures who do not remember the essence of their own true nature. And you will spend your lifetime working for the sake of these others, but all your meditations have cleansed away any idea that these others really exist separate from yourself. Again, here's this beautiful paradox. So there are these traditional bodhisattva vows, you know, sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. Start with the person sitting next to you and people in your family, see how far you get. Right. <laughs> Desires are inexhaustible. I vow to 
you know, rid myself or overcome them. The Dharma gains are endless. I vow to enter them, master them on some way or other. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to fulfill it. They're all different versions of these vows. I, I, when I was 30 years old, I'd been teaching with Joseph and Sharon at Naropa Buddhist University with Chogyam Trumpa and Ramdas. And I thought, oh, 30, 30th birthday, I'll take bodhisattva vows as kind of a special ritual. And we went way up in the Colorado Rockies. We had a kind of week. Someone gave us this house way up at 11,000 feet or something. It was beautiful. And a week or 10 days. And so I was young and I really sat and I didn't move and I got very concentrated and very, very still. Um, and then it was my birthday. It was time to take the vows. But my mind had gotten really quiet, so there wasn't a lot of thought. And without thought, there isn't actually much sense of oneself or another, there's just experience. And then I picked up the vows, and I was going to take them, lit a candle, set everything up, do these things. And I couldn't do it, because they didn't make any sense to me. Because um, there wasn't me and other beings, there was just the world, when the mind is quiet. You know? So there wasn't anybody to save, exactly. Um, there was just this or whatever. So I had to rewrite them. And instead of sentient beings, you know, okay, there's one, there's two, you know, going through all the numbers, I vowed um, to manifest boundless compassion. It wasn't about me and somebody else because there wasn't anybody else. It was just us. And desires are inexhaustible. I vowed to cultivate or manifest um, boundless humor. <laughs> because the human condition is so pathetic and interesting at the same time. Right? And Dharma gates are, you know, endless. So I vowed to develop or manifest uh, endless curiosity, just openness to know. And the Buddha's way unsurpassable. Well, if it's unsurpassable, I vowed to relax. So I rewrote them. Um, And when you're quiet, there isn't, you know this, you know, there's less us and me and them, and there's just this space of life. But the bodhisattva vows, you know, so they don't mean you're going to go around and save all beings. Rather, what they are is a way of setting the compass of the heart. So the bodhisattva relies on knowledge or knowing and not the knowledge of the head but the knowledge of the heart that there's suffering and that there's freedom. And the bodhisattva vows on this, um, relies on deep intention. And deep intention is to take a vow and before you leave you can consider what your own intention or vows might be. Um, and to set the compass of the heart means, as Suzuki Roshi said, even if the sun should arise in the west, the bodhisattva has only one way. That is, even if the world turns upside down, the way of the bodhisattva is compassion and uh, wakefulness and presence, no matter what happens. And it's so helpful, because you get in all these circumstances, and I do too, where you can get confused or doubting, or what should I do? And if you just take a breath and say, well, what is my highest intention? Whether it's in a conversation with someone where you're in conflict, take a pause, what's my highest intention? Changes the whole conversation. 
But more than that, in your life, as you go through, it doesn't actually matter so much what you do, but it matters what is the direction that you are headed with your heart. That's because that's how life unfolds. So I was giving some teachings not so long ago and got to do some teachings where the Dalai Lama was sitting there. It's kind of fun to teach the Dalai Lama. It is, it's kind of cool, you know. We had a little disagreement about something that that made it even more fun. But anyway, um, but I was teaching about the Bodhisattva and I really wanted to tell him this story because I thought it would help him. And I, did, I think it did, actually. Um, and that is that um, in Sri Lanka, where there's been this terrible civil war that ended a, about a year ago or so, but lasted for 20 years or so, somewhere in the middle of it, the Norwegians tried to broker a peace treaty. And when they did, Ari Ratana, who is the Gandhi figure of Sri Lanka and has been here at Sri Rock and a friend, he called all the followers of his Gandhian movement called Sarvodia, where they dig wells and build schools and do all this beautiful stuff. He said, we don't want to build schools or dig wells or roads. What we want to do is teach people to love each other. And building roads and digging wells is the way we teach love, really. Anyway, he, got, he called all those followers together and 650,000 people came to the great ancient temple of Anuradhapura, the kind of oldest temple in Sri Lanka. And that's in a country that's only 18 million people. Kind of extraordinary. He's an amazing person. And he got up and he said, he said, um, we've been called upon to support this peace treaty. And the Buddha said that those who are wise, those who are foolish look at results and those who are wise look at causes and conditions. And if we look at the causes and conditions of our civil war, we can see that it's taken 500 years to develop 400 years of British colonial oppression, 500 years of conflict between Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims, 200 years of economic disparity between the rich wet parts and the poor uh, dry parts of the island. So it will take us 500 years to right this injustice and conflict. And what I offer you is the Sarvodia 500-year peace plan, which is five years of ceasefire and 10 years of rebuilding roads and schools and 25 years of learning each other's language and culture and 50 years of working to right the economic disparities and in 100 years we'll have a council of elders and we'll see are we headed in the right direction and then we'll do it again four more times for 500 years and he said I think if we do it for 500 years we'll, we'll really make this an island of peace. And I heard this secondhand, I wasn't there from some friends, and I was so moved, I almost wept, because it was the it was the words and the vision of an elder who wasn't worried about the next election cycle or the focus groups, you know, or the political climate. It was something that was so timeless. Um, as Thomas Merton put it. He said, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and achieve no result at all, if not, at some times, bring about its opposite. As you get used to this, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, 
but on the value, the rightness, and the truth of the work itself. So I got to tell the Dalai Lama that story because he carries all that unrequited suffering of Tibet. And he was nodding and, you know, I mean, I knew it meant something. Um, But what it means is that as the bodhisattva, you go in the direction of compassion and freedom and, you know, circumstances do what they will. It turns the heart toward the highest, most beautiful of possibilities, which is awakening. And that becomes the game. Now, a couple more things. The Bodhisattva learns trust. While we've been sitting, well, I I think I should read this first. Um, This is Howard Zinn, you know, author of the um, People's History of the United States and an amazing visionary activist, whatever. And he wrote this, I don't know, five or more years ago, talking about how difficult the times were and how despairing certain people were and about being encouraging and hopeful. And he said, to be hopeful in hard times is not just foolish or romantic. It's based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. And what we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. But if we remember those times and places, and there are so many where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act and the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. To live as human beings should live in defiance of all that is bad around us is a marvelous victory. And he says earlier in this piece, he said, things are so unexpected. He said, who would have predicted that the whole Soviet empire and, you know, 20 countries, Lithuania, Latvia, Czechoslovakia at that time, Hungary, that they would all be liberated in the course of a few years um, without any war. I mean, amazing it had happened. They say, well, that was an anomaly. Well, while you've been sitting and you heard a little bit, not only was there, and who knows how it's all going to play out. It'll probably play out somewhat the way the Soviet empire dissolved. Some places will become magnificently free, like the Czech Republic or Hungary, and some might not. Some might end up more like, uh, you know, like what? Belarus, yeah, or or some Kazakhstan maybe, or some places. It's going to be it's going to be complicated. But what happened in Egypt was magnificent. Weeks, and the military said, "Yes, we will not. We will not shoot on our own people. We will not shoot our own people." And it just changed everything. And Tunisia, and now Libya, it's much more complicated. There's this whole big, almost civil war with the NATO planes backing the rebels, as you probably heard. But there are 100,000 people in the streets of Yemen. 
and there's 100,000, 200,000 people in the streets of Syria. And they're being shot sometimes, but they don't, they're not going back into their homes. Um, and there's this thing that's just sweeping across the, that whole part of the world where the average dictator has been in power for 30 or 35 years. So it's so unexpected and it's so amazing. So the Bodhisattva learns somehow to trust. If you learn nothing else here, it's that trust. To go stand in the middle of the lines and trust, as Pablo Neruda says, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. And that there's something that wants to get born anew, that was born anew in each one of you, and that wants to get born anew again and again in this beautiful world. And you just take it a step at a time. The Bodhisattva isn't in any hurry. He really trusts, you know, Ajahn Chah. It's like watching the, the, the um, redbud trees out there that started to bloom, you know, the last few days. They know when to bloom, you know. Ajahn Chah was out walking with us one day, and there was this huge stone over there. And he said, see that boulder over there? Is it heavy? And we said, yes. And he said, not if you don't pick it up. <laughs> and then he then he went on and he did this little teaching. He said he said the way you practice is you, you know you might see somebody in you know strong man in the circus or whatever it is who can lift this. He said you you lift what you can lift and then you add a little weight to it and you you do your training and you know sooner or later you can do great things. But there isn't any hurry. You'll get there. Just set the direction. And what I'm talking about tonight is the, the theme of the retreat, these awakened qualities of um, the Brahma-viharas of compassion and love, equanimity of wisdom and joy. The Bodhisattva learns to trust and to respond rather than just to react to things. When you stay in yourself, there's a kind of flexibility that comes. An acquaintance poet, Oriah Mountain Dreamer, writes that she just finished teaching a meditation seminar for a couple of days, and she was tired at the end. It's, it's tiring doing this stuff. You all look younger and happier and freer, and we look bedraggled, and you know, it's like some transfer here that's going on. So at the end of this long day, a small, thin woman in an oversized parka introduced herself as Isabel. Can I do this meditation on my own, she asked. Yes, I said, I'm sure you can, although many people find it easier to establish meditation with the help of a group. It's hard to keep it up on your own. But what will it give me? I mean, what will I get if I do this every day? And her tone took on a whining quality and I felt my irritation rise. And she continued, how fast will it work? I mean, will I feel a difference after a week? How will I even know it's working? This was exactly the kind of thing I detested. The quest for the quick fix, the desire for guaranteed outcomes, the simple answer. Do this and you get that. Pay your money and you receive this. My kids were waiting for me and I wanted to get home. So I took a deep breath, 
looked directly at Isabel and set my knapsack down on the floor. I tried to slow down my words, thinking that maybe if I spoke slower, I would feel more patient. Well, I said, meditation is more a process than a goal-oriented activity. It can help you become aware of what's going on and reduce stress. My best advice is to try it. Just be patient with yourself. And I picked up my bag and started to button my coat. I really had to go, and I wanted to get out of there while I was feeling virtuous for not snapping her head off. (laughs) But as I started to move away, Isabel suddenly reached out and grabbed my arm with surprising strength. But what I want to know, she said, her voice rising in a crescendo that bordered on real panic, is will it help me find God? I mean, if I meditate, we'll have an experience of something or somebody out there listening, somebody with me. And a wave of desperation swept out through her to me, and I was surprised to find my eyes fill with tears. This woman wasn't looking for an easy answer or a guaranteed formula because she was lazy. She didn't want a simple plan because she was unable or unwilling to think critically about what would work. She wanted something she knew would work and work quickly because she was hanging on by her fingernails. She wanted something that would work in a week because she was afraid that she simply wasn't going to make it through months or years. And I put my hand gently over Isabel's where it gripped my arm and I said, it's okay, Isabel. We all feel desperate at times, all of us. Nobody does it by themselves. We all need help. And her hand relaxed a little beneath mine, and she started to cry. We talked for a while longer. There is no them. There's only us. And when I left, I didn't leave one of them. I said goodbye to one of us, a human being, another, doing the best she can, searching for the home for which all our hearts long. So it's not so complicated. The Bodhisattva knows trust that it's possible and knows how to respond rather than react. And the Bodhisattva also is playful. There's a kind of, I mean, you watch the Dalai Lama laugh, you know, he has all that weight. And Mahagosananda, I remember him sitting up here, we've talked about him a lot. And he was, my daughter called him Butterball. You know, he's this bright orange robe, you know, and Brother David Sendlerest said, who is that monk who upstaged the Dalai Lama sometimes? Oh, that's Gosananda, that's, you know. And even he's tremendously humble, but he's just like this radiant being. The Tibetan Lamas who came, who were there, so many Rinpoche's have said, wow, who's that guy? You know, can we get his teaching? And so forth. Um, But he was tremendously playful. It wasn't like, Um, and joyful. It wasn't this grim duty. Um, This from psychologist Len Bergantino. He writes about working with this patient, these frustrated therapy sessions with a patient who was either disconnected and detached or trying to please him. The feeling I had on this particular way was I just didn't want to say one more word to him about anything or hear his. So to his surprise, I took out my mandolin and in the most loving, mellow, beautiful way I could, I played Come Back to Sorrento. He broke down in tears and cried for the last 40 minutes of the session, saying only, Bergantino, you sure earned your money today. And I replied to think I wasted all those years talking to people. You know? 
But I carry with me when I teach this picture of Vedran Smolovich, the cellist of Sarajevo. And this is him playing in the bombed out National Library of Sarajevo in the Balkan War when Yugoslavia dissolved. And for three years, Sarajevo, this magnificent international city, was under siege. And you couldn't get in and out except by helicopter, and mortars and sniper. And he'd been a member of the Sarajevo National Symphony. And what he would do is he would put on his tux and go out really regularly to squares and places where people were killed in spite of the snipers, take his little folding chair, put on his tux and play his cello so that the people of Sarajevo wouldn't give up hope. The most beautiful thing. So there's some kind of playfulness and joy. There's a a healing of beauty that you bring to the world. It's not a grim duty to be a bodhisattva. It's actually a, um, it's a joyful way to live and to be. And then wherever you are becomes this great temple. One friend and practitioner who was here on a two-month retreat wrote this note to me. She said, a few days ago, it was evening, just the late sitting in the two-month retreat, and I was sitting quietly in the back of the meditation hall, and it was raining, and the room was dark except for the candles on the altar and dim lights, and it felt like we were all camped out around a sacred fire. And everyone sat so still, and my breath almost stopped, and I wonder what it was, the feeling. And then I realized, ah, this is contentment. There was nowhere else on earth I wanted to be and no one else I wanted to be with. I was peaceful and deeply silent and all my struggles had dropped away and I was content. I felt truly blessed. And all of a sudden, it felt like the blessings couldn't contain themselves. And I began blessing everyone in the room one by one, their backs or the back of their heads. And even the ones I couldn't see so well, I would shoot some blessings around a chair or into a leg or a hand until I got everyone in the room. And we sat in a sea of blessings until the bell rang. And I've been smiling since then. It's not that complicated. You know, and you'll go out to... um, all the things of the world. I mean, what an amazing thing human incarnation is. But you will carry the spirit of the temple because it's in you now. You are the temple. Um, And you can, you know, shoot your blessings around as you do. Let's sit for a couple of minutes and as we do, particularly would like to ask that you do metta and compassion for the people in Japan. You might as well throw in Libya while you're at it. 
The people in Libya in the Civil War where it's terrifying. And the people in Japan from this once in a thousand years um, level of an earthquake, a 9.0, and the tsunami and all of that loss. Um, And the people in both of those countries have a lot of dignity and nobility and resilience, but they could use your blessings. Sapitio iwachantu, saparoko inasatu, madepoatwantarayo, sukiti kayu kobawa, habiwatanasile sanijang, utabachayino, jataru dhammavatandi, hayuano sukang, palam. So again, for the sake of all beings, and the bodhisattva, this is a really important thing. Um, The bodhisattva doesn't differentiate between all beings and themselves. You know, people, it gets really weird if you think compassion is for other people. Then it gets kind of codependent. Okay, I'll save all of them, but you leave out that one uh, other critical being. You know, then the circle is not complete, so it has to be yourself as part of it. Um, 
So for the sake of all sentient beings, please um, steward, shepherd, um, husband, wife, the silence. Take care with it. Um, your nervous system and your body will appreciate it as will everybody else. And you had a chance to talk and now it's really time to, again, let things digest in you. And walk and it's a beautiful evening, come back and sit. And uh, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.